This program is made possible by members and donors, so huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the violence being inflicted upon the LGB and particularly T community, as well as the history of our society's erasure of trans people who've been around for thousands of years. Clips today come from Mother Jones, The Breakdown with Sean King, The Laura Flanders Show, Democracy Now!, Latino Rebels Radio, Backstory, and a TED Talk from Sammy Newer Eunice. It started as a party and ended in a rebellion. We're talking about Stonewall, that epic night in 1969 that kicked off the LGBT movement as we know it. Transgender activist Victoria Cruz was at Stonewall that night. So, Jamila from Mother Jones. Surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> Hi. Come on in. Okay. Were you ringing the bell? We were, yeah. Ms. Vicky, as she's known to her friends, didn't mean to be part of history. She was just there at the bar trying to get her boyfriend back. So it's basically a love story with a few cops added in. Ms. Vicky has been fighting to keep her friend Marsha P. Johnson's memory alive. Marsha helped lead the Stonewall Uprising and was an activist until her death in 1992. Marsha's death was ruled a suicide, but Ms. Vicky suspected foul play. She's featured in the Netflix documentary The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. I was born in Puerto Rico, and we moved here after the Korean War. My father was looking for a better life for his kids, and uh, I'm a hairstylist. I graduated from Brooklyn College, and I studied theater, and for some reason I became a social worker. Honey, I was stalking my man who worked at the Stonewall, and he didn't come home that Thursday night, so I says, no, 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 no. And you know how Puerto Rican girls are. They chase their men out there. So I went to see what the hell he's doing, and he was coming home with me that night. Because I sat right there by um, 55 Christopher Street, that stoop there. And he saw me and says, what are you doing here? He says, you didn't come home last night. You're going home with me tonight. Well, we decided to go because it was Friday night, and me and Bertie, my best friend, we decided to go. You know, we just, you know, there were no real decisions. You just went to a bar. It was only a bar. Martin Boyce was also there that night, smoking cigarettes on a nearby stoop, when he heard commotion down the street. Somebody rushed by and was talking to the friend, saying something about a raid. He was a bored, gay teen with nothing to lose. So he went to see what all the commotion was about. It changed his life. When I got here... I got near a paddy wagon, and this was this horrible, ugly policeman. Digital fellow Jordan Gaspore met up with Martin at Stonewall National Monument, a small park across the street from the bar. He was on the ledge of the back of the paddy wagon, and a queen kicked him back, just saw her heel. And it was an amazing sight, because it was like a John Crawford-type heel. And what the cops would do is say, get the fuck out of here, and then, you know, we'd have to get, or we'd leave. And he said, you know, get the fuck out of here, the show's over. Same way they always did it, with that terrible, horrible arrogance and that 
disdain, a terrible disdain. And uh, we, he turned around because we were going to move. Of course, we always did. But this time we didn't. I don't know why. I know there was some commotion inside because I heard glass breaking. And you heard flesh and bone against metal. We each took steps towards him. Nobody looked at each other, so I don't know what was in their eyes. Uh, we just kept doing it. Or oh, he turned around to say it again, and the last time, the stick was in the air. Whatever was in our eyes, he blinked, he gulped, he turned around and headed for the door, and the riot was on. First, they started throwing pennies as a protest, coppers. But it got worse. You know, people by this time started gathering around and said, oh, no, you don't. And, honey, there comes a brick flying. And it broke the window, then a bottle, then another bottle, and rocks. And the cops went inside. I guess they went inside to call backup. Miss New Orleans, she was on the ledge of the window of Stonewall, so I had to look a little up towards her. And I haven't seen a face like that since I saw a lithograph of John Brown, the abolitionist. Tense fire, the hair thrown back. De determination, I couldn't believe. By the time people, uh, a whole bunch of people started gathering, it was so boring that night. They started battering the door. And then um, they started chasing people. Another queen came who I thought was peeing on the door in disrespect. I said, well, that's strange to do in public, you know. It was lighting fluid. And the queen turned around, lit a match, and threw the match. That door went up. So we went up 7th Avenue and made a right on 10th Street. When we got to Julius, we made another right on Waverly, which led us back to Christopher. And now we were chasing the cops. It was like a Keystone comedy. And we knew somehow to keep it going. And also, we were attacked so many times in the city, we always knew how to regroup. Uh, this uh, gay bashing sort of made us, in the end, urban guerrillas. It was, I cannot tell you how well choreographed this thing was, but twirling, swirling, sweat, smelling of sweat, and, and burnt cloth, and burnt wood, and haze, and color as people twisted and turned like a kaleidoscope. Everyone in the city knew. Everyone knew. Eight million people knew what happened that night without a newspaper or a radio report. Amazing. Because faggots were always interesting to people. <laughs> For good or bad, you know. And, you know, it, it felt like liberating. You weren't taking no more of that shit. So you didn't think. You just fought. Stonewalls was mixed, but the ones that started the thing were the transgender women, because they were being harassed the most. You push anybody into a corner, they're going to push back. And that's what happened. And I think they should be given full credit for that. And these names should be more commonly known, because they were, because they're all real individuals, and real, real uh, amazing characters. I saw queens who hated each other fight side by side with each other and look at each other with valor and respect. 
Amazing night. And then the following year, there was a big pride celebration. That was Miss Vicky, a transgender activist on the lasting significance of Stonewall. Well, people came, protested, demonstrated. That showed the unity. That showed the need. That showed that we all felt the same way. Enough was enough. That was Martin Boyce, a veteran of the Stonewall Uprising, on the night that changed his life. It was called hate-based, shocking, and brutal. This was the video of a Dallas transgender woman. People recorded her being attacked, beaten by at least one man and more. Others joining in as well. Tonight, the news is worse. Malaysia Booker is dead. Dallas police confirming someone shot and killed her. Today at approximately 3 p.m., the victim was positively identified as Malaysia Booker. She became a victim of mob violence and video proof of people urging that violence on. This time it was me. The next time it could be someone else close to you. Malaysia Booker received nationwide attention in April after her recorded attack by a group of men. Booker, a transgender woman, faced that attack after a car accident and argument escalated outside the Dallas apartment complex. Tonight... Dallas police say officers responded to this isolated East Dallas street on Saturday morning on reports of gunshots. It was after the medical examiner uh, was able to positively identify our victim and we were informed that the victim was in fact Malaysia Booker. Hate is really a mutating virus. It leaps from host to host taking on new forms and new expressions. But it's not new. It's ancient. From the beginning of time, deep into antiquity, we see hate. And as easy as it would be for us to reduce hate as something that bigoted white people in America own all into themselves, that oversimplification is just not true. Each of us has the ability to be hateful. None of us have minds or souls or hearts that are impervious to hate. And today is not about me giving you some fresh definitions of what racism is or what sexism is, because those are systemic. White supremacy is systemic. And I'm not here today to challenge those definitions or to expand those definitions. But today I am here for us to confront a very particular type of hate. And toxic masculinity, truth be told, is at the root of it. At the root of it. Last year, at least 26 transgender people were violently murdered in the United States. Many inside experts actually believe that that number could be as high as 50 or 60. And dozens of transgender folk are missing all over the country. And many of them are presumed dead as well. And not all of them. But the strong majority, 
of the missing and murdered transgender folk in this country are black. And at least five transgender women have already been killed so far this year. Last year in Jacksonville, Florida alone, four black transgender women were shot and three were killed. In fact, you'd struggle to find a single demographic more likely to experience extreme violence than black transgender women in this country. And for the next few minutes, I just want us to have an open, honest conversation about what I think is at play. Now, we have an extremely diverse base of listeners. We have listeners from nearly 200 countries, from all 50 states, from every major city in the world, from every faith and religion, and from every type of ethnic and racial and cultural background. So some of what I'm going to say is going to challenge many of you. And I want to apologize in advance if my words fail me in this episode. And I say that because I am learning and I am growing and getting more informed about the real struggles of being transgender in the United States. I am not an expert on this. But I have been brutally beaten before. When I was just 15 years old, A racist mob of white students beat me in much the same way that Malaysia was beaten in Dallas last month. I had fractures in my face and ribs and required three spinal surgeries to recover from it all. And I missed nearly two years of high school because of it. And it changed my life forever. It's hard for me to believe, but that was nearly 25 years ago. And what that did What the assault and the recovery did was it made me hyper aware and hypersensitive to people in pain, physical pain and emotional pain. It made me hyper aware and hypersensitive to people who are being bullied no matter why. And on that level, at least, I identify with what Malaysia Booker experienced. But I have to confess that I have no idea what it must be like to be born a biological male or be born a biological female or be born and even feel from birth that you simply don't fit into either gender category or feel that you are being placed in the wrong gender category or feel that there should not be gender categories. I don't, I don't understand that because that has not been my lived experience. And anytime I talk about this, particularly on social media, I see the hate and discrimination come out in the comments almost immediately. And it's always ugly, but it's also ignorant. And I use that word ignorant on purpose. And I mean that in the real sense of the word, people just don't know what they're talking about. And what I see are people saying that it's a lie, that we are all either men or women, that we don't get to choose to be a man if we were a woman or We don't get to choose to be a woman if we are a man. I see people saying that being transgender is an abomination, that it's a sin. As a former pastor, I find that one of people saying it's a sin. I find that particularly peculiar because the people calling it a sin seem to consistently be the worst sinners among us. I see people saying 
that with all the problems we have in the black community, like police brutality and mass incarceration, where millions and millions of people are locked up, that it's a waste for men to become women and women to become men. I see people say, I saw it just today, that it hurts the race, that it sets us back. And I'm not sure that any of those people fully understand. I'm not sure that they understand that every time you make one of those comments, it may be how you really feel. Okay, I acknowledge that. It may be how you really feel. But those comments, which are more about your confusion on the issue than anything else, those comments actually make transgender people less safe in society. And let me explain what I mean. When you say that the very identity of a person is a sin, a lie, an abomination, a disgrace, a setback for the race, when you say that, whether you intend to or not, you devalue the humanity of that person. And not just of the single person or single photo or single video that you may be talking about, but you devalue all transgender people. And maybe you say, no, no, Sean, that's not possible. But let me flip it around for a moment. Because maybe you can never imagine yourself being transgender, and that's fine. I get that. But let's imagine, let's imagine for a moment that suddenly all of society, all of society turned and the dominant popular view became that it was an abomination to be heterosexual, that it was a sin to be straight, that it's wrong to be straight, that it was ugly and horrible to be straight. Or let's flip it to your eye color or your hair color or your height. Imagine all of a sudden that it was regularly called a sin, a stain, a waste, horrible, ugly, an abomination, wrong to be your height, to be your weight, to have your eye color, your hair color, your hairstyle, would you still feel safe if you knew? Would you still feel safe if you knew that millions of people looked at you and thought that you were a sin, that you were a crime, that you are a shame, that you are disgusting? I wouldn't feel safe. And if you're being honest, you wouldn't either. And here's what happens. When the humanity of an entire group of people, because they are Jewish, because they are black, or because they are Muslims, or because they are immigrants, when the humanity of an entire group of people is devalued, it gives people who aren't in that devalued group the sense that they can be abusive without consequence. It gives them the sense that they can be verbally abusive without consequences or that they can be physically abusive without consequences. That's why hate crimes are currently at the highest rate ever measured in American history. People have been given the distinct impression from the president of the United States right on down that certain people 
and certain categories and distinctions of people are better than others. That certain lives matter more than others. Now, the United States has always played that game, but it's bad and disturbing right now. When the president of the United States pardons war criminals who murdered Muslim children in cold blood, guess what signal that sends? Who gets devalued there? When the president calls neo-Nazis who just murdered a woman and brutally beat a man, when the president calls those neo-Nazis very fine people, guess what signal that sends? And when any of us, including me, including you, devalue the humanity of trans people, we send a horrible signal that it's okay to be abusive. And you and I may say, well, I I didn't mean to send that signal. I didn't mean to send that message. And I understand that. So I'm trying to teach you right now the difference between impact and intention. And thank God for my wife, Ray King. Ray taught me this, the difference between impact and intention. You might not have intended your words to be harmful, but we aren't just responsible for our intentions. We are also responsible for the impact of our words and actions. And sometimes the impact of our words, the impact of our actions can be far worse than our intentions. But here's the thing. We're responsible for both. I'm going to ask you to do something maybe makes you uncomfortable, but talk a little bit about somebody like me. I mean, here, I've been in this business a long time. Mm. I think there are things, I know there are things that I still don't get Mm. about trans rights, about a trans vision of the world, Mm. around trans expertise. Mm. Um, Even as we cover alternatives and, and, you know, the tag of our show is the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. What does somebody even like me need to perhaps see that I'm not seeing about the importance of looking at the trans struggle and trans rights? I think trans is essential in a lot of different ways. Um, I was actually speaking uh, to uh, uh, someone who's been in women's movement and feminist movement recently about this long conversation. And there cannot be an end to patriarchy without an embracing of trans rights. It's fundamentally impossible. And to the degree that we believe that patriarchy is a fundamental pillar on which injustice is built in our society, that means that that pillar can't be undone. Because as long as we have gender essentialism, as long as we think in binary ways, uh, we're going to get caught in the same constant trap. And it's one of the reasons why we haven't made as much progress as we think we should have made on feminism and on women's rights. That's because misogyny and patriarchy are essentially still there and they work in the same ways um, around these issues. And so what trans, what the trans perspective does is that it under, fundamentally undermines that. It takes the core argument of biological determinism out 
of the conversation of gender, which then undermines patriarchy. So if if me being born this way doesn't mean that I automatically have this status in society, that means that those two things are totally separate, which then drives a completely different conversation. And so what trans about what trans is about is about the ability to see and to reimagine our society in broad ways that can lead towards justice and humanity and put human beings at the center of our systems rather than orthodoxy. Yeah, I mean, I wonder where we took a weird turn mm. um, in the sense that when I was coming up, which you would say I sort of probably got my feminism in the 70s and mm. early 80s, mm. I was a queer left socialist feminist. Mm. And I thought that was sort of our vision was to destabilize the binaries and to um, undermine capitalist transactional relationships and right. instead have transformational, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And then somehow it all became defending this law, defending this gain. And let's not talk about anything else while we're under attack. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that... Um one of the things that is essential for us to understand is that even if we don't like the system, we've been raised in the system, <laughs> right? Um, a huge part of the system is didactic thinking. So even one thing against the, it's either, it's either or. So for instance, if you are a socialist feminist and you're in a meeting with men and women who are also socialist, um, and then there's a conversation about, well, we need to fight for worker cooperatives. Right. Um, and then someone raises their hand and says, well, what about the role of women in cooperatives? Because unless we have women leaders. And then they go, well, we can't do that because we can only do one right. thing at a time. Everyone's been raised in this binary system, right, of thinking and of forcing you to make choice. And also the other thing that people don't think about is the way in which subconsciously everyone has absorbed um, all of the isms. Yeah. So um, one of the things, for instance, that patriarchy does really well is that it gets women to question ourselves, right, fundamentally, right? Just automatically, you automatically, when you, even when you think you know the right answer, you think about it twice, you know, and that's, men don't do that, no, right? Like, I've noticed. Right? <laughs> There's never that consideration. So if then what happens, if someone in this proverbial meeting raises a doubt, then you begin to doubt yourself. And it's a way in which you then are feeding into patriarchy in a way that you don't even think. Yeah. So it's fascinating and super exciting. And I wish we had more time because it also seems like at a moment where technology is also mm. driving us towards a binary kind of, are you a one or a zero? Is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Are you a friend or a not friend? What is your relationship? Um, the trans movement is saying, no, 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 no. Mutability is all. And in fact, trans is something we all need to embrace in terms of a sense of Absolutely. possibility. Absolutely. And, 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 well, yeah, mutability in a very rigid age. Exactly. One, one thing on that, though, the, one of the key areas of competition between the United States and China with respect to computing and technology is actually um, quantum computing, which takes you out of zeros and ones. So we may actually be moving to a world within our lifetimes where the binary, even within that, loses its power, which leads to entirely different possibilities, frightening possibilities for computing. But it means that we are living in a world in so many ways in which we're trying to impose a binary on a planet and a place that's resisting it.
Now, as you probably know, this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you who have signed up to support the show on Patreon. But of course, I don't just depend on selfless kindness to run the show. Patrons receive a whole lot of bonus content in addition to ad-free versions of every show. But frankly, I have been doing a terrible job recently of bragging about those bonus episodes so that you know what you're missing. So for instance, uh, recent bonus episodes have included some stories from my recent family trip to Scotland, uh, but none of the boring stuff about like what fun we had, only the really interesting stuff about the relationship between Scottish history and the Confederate South, if you can believe that. Of course, most people, including me until recently, had no idea about that. Uh, there have been lessons from my hobby of etymology, uh, learning the histories and origins of words and phrases. So I've been explaining like the relationship between the word canon, as in how people debate which parts of the Star Wars extended universe should qualify as official canon, and to canonize, as in what the church decides to do to saints. Interesting that those two things are related. And uh, most recently, we've been having one of our most uncomfortable and controversial topic discussions uh, discussing the effect of uh, pornography and specifically violent pornography on society. And that discussion ended up going in some unexpected directions, and the responses from members have been very insightful and interesting as well. So it's not just additional clips you're missing out on it. There's all kinds of interesting discussions happening for the members. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash bestofleft. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestofleft. And even if it isn't entirely selfless, it is still very kind of you to support the production of this show uh, for all to hear, whether they can afford to donate or not. So thanks so much for the support. We turn now to look at the Trump administration's deadly treatment of transgender asylum seekers in immigration prisons after a transgender woman died after being released from ICE custody Saturday. Johanna Medina, a 25-year-old transgender asylum seeker from El Salvador, died at at an El Paso, Texas hospital this weekend after spending seven weeks in immigration jail. According to several LGBT groups and advocates who knew her, Medina had sought medical treatment for nearly two months for complications related to HIV-AIDS before finally being transferred to the hospital last week. She died four days later. Johanna Medina is believed to be the second transgender migrant to die in or after being released from ICE custody since Trump became president. The other is Roxana Hernandez-Rodriguez, a 33-year-old Honduran transgender woman who died while in ICE custody in May of last year. An autopsy revealed she was physically assaulted prior to her death. For more, we're going to Phoenix, Arizona, where we're joined by Isa Noyola. She's deputy director at Mijente, the former deputy director at the Transgender Law Center, and a transgender and immigrant rights activist herself. We welcome you to Democracy Now! Isa, can you describe what you understand were the circumstances um, of her death? The circumstances of Johanna are the same circumstances that so many trans women inside immigration detention centers are facing, which is cruel and inhumane treatment and human torture. And so we understand that um, Immigration Customs Enforcement has seen trans women, immigrant trans women, as disposable. Um, you know, from we see it through the ways that they're placing trans women through administrative segregation and also 
um, denying them medical care and medical treatment. And Johanna is just another example, another extreme story of so much loss and of so much pain um, that someone has endured um, even after the long and arduous journey of arriving to the border. And so uh, Johanna has left her hometown with so much hope of El Salvador, uh, her country, and she had so much hope for a better life, to live her life fully, authentically as a trans Latina immigrant woman, and only to be met with violence at the border and, and discrimination and even more violence inside detention facility. Uh, I'm wondering if you could, uh, uh, if you could talk of the, your experience with uh, refugees who are coming, who are uh, trying to get into the United States. Uh, the the uh, one group in uh, Honduras, Catrachas, a, which is a, a lesbian feminist organization, has estimated that between 2013 and 2017, 30, they found 34 cases of uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans people who had been deported back to Honduras and then were later killed. Uh, and wh what the situation is uh, for uh, trans folks, especially in Honduras and Central America right now. The climate for trans people around globally is alarming. Um, the level of violence has always existed. It is now recently being studied, researched, and documented by the media. But um, being in the trans community and doing this work for so many years, um, doing local immigrant rights work for trans people in San Francisco at El Para Transatinas, we always understood that the violence surrounds our daily lives, violence surrounds the community, and that one of the main push factors and reasons why trans people migrate, why trans people globally are seeking refuge, are seeking safety, are seeking a better place to live their lives and to have a chance, have a possibility of, uh, you know, what everyone else has, what everyone else is living in terms of their dreams, in terms of their having access to healthcare, having access to housing, having access to education, having access to community, right? And so detention and immigration uh, have, have been, immigration customs enforcement have been hell-bent on denying basic human rights to our community. And so the phenomena of violence and murder is not a new thing. There's no uptick. It has always existed. Um, now there's an acknowledgement of it, but the, the reality is that Central American trans people, that queer LGBT plus folks have faced in have faced in their countries are the same that are experiencing in Mexico, in Asia, in in all over the all over the continent of Africa. Um, and so we understand that the violence is is one of the main factors of why trans people are marginalized, why trans people are placed in vulnerable situations where they have very limited choices. Uh -huh. And so when you understand that then there's a systemic issue involved um, when you get to the border, right, and you, then you're returned back, um, you know, people are still going to find possibilities to exist and to live. A report released last month by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists revealed that since 2012, ICE has used solitary confinement as a routine punishment for thousands of immigrants and asylum seekers locked up in immigration jails across the country. Immigration officers repeatedly yes. used isolation cells to punish gay, transgender and disabled immigrants for their identities. This is a clip from an NBC interview with two trans women who were held in isolation while in ICE custody. In this clip, uh, we hear from Dulce Rivera, a trans woman from Honduras who was kept in solitary for 11 months while in ICE custody and attempted suicide. But 
But first, Jocelyn Mendez, a trans woman from Nicaragua who was put in solitary twice for a total of nine days. And well, the truth is, what I went through in there is something I don't even wish on my worst enemy. It's horrible. I felt like I really didn't know what was going to happen to me. I felt afraid. I felt that I couldn't even breathe. And at the beginning, I began to scream and scream where they locked me up. I told them, release me. I can't stand it. I am short of breath. I asked them for help. I told them, I need to see a psychologist. I need to see a psychologist. And what happened is that the guard's response was no. So then... I decided to tie a piece of blanket to the window above. And I completely covered the door outside so that no one was seeing what was happening inside the room. I made a lasso. I hung myself. So it's something psychological. Mental, that it affected me in being in that place. So disgusting and horrible. That's Dulce Rivera, and before that, Jocelyn Mendez, describing their experience in solitary. Um, Issa, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about Johanna's death. Um, she was held in an all-male detention facility, and if you could describe these facilities that you've entered and seen and what you're calling for. I also—I want to clear something up also. I just want to be very, very clear that Immigration Customs Enforcement is responsible for the death of not just Johanna Medina and Roxana Hernandez, but also Victoria Arellano in 2007, who was handcuffed to her bed, pleading for her life, and was an HIV-positive trans woman. So ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, has to be held accountable for the deaths of these trans women and all the deaths that happen inside detention facilities and Customs Border Patrol has to be held accountable for the deaths that are occurring at the border. Johanna, um, you know, the, her experience at, uh, that uh, she had at the Otero facility is one that exists, the experience that exists in all of the 200-plus facilities that exist around the country. Uh, and that is one of human rights violations and denial of access to medical treatment and to basic human dignity. The ways that trans women are um, classified by Immigration Customs Enforcement is based on genitalia, is based on a classification that does not align with our community, that is that is dehumanizing us um, from the very beginning. And Immigration Customs Enforcement does not make any excuses about that. They are very clear and adamant that trans people inside detention are not human beings. And they've demonstrated that time and time again. And Johanna... Her experience is one of many of trans people who have been placed um, in, in at whether it's administrative segregation or whether it's with other in the male housing units, right, where sexual assault is experienced and one of the highest levels for trans people inside detention. Jenna said, um, one of the reasons that we're doing this series is because we've had previous LGBTQ guests on the show. And one of the conclusions that we seem to reach 
sometimes is that the LGBTQ immigrant community is a marginalized group within a marginalized group. So number one, I want to know if you agree with this, with this concept and also, you know, the concept of the idea of homophobia, not only through, you know, the power structures in the aforementioned places that we mentioned in Central America and Mexico, but also within the immigrant the immigrant community itself, you know, the issues of homophobia within the immigrant community itself and sometimes within other, you know, other organizations who are trying to help immigrant rights as well. I mean, it's it sometimes can be a tough thing, but are, are we in the right direction in, in, in pointing out these things? Um, unfortunately, I do agree with that statement, right? We are a marginalized group for some of us who are members of the LGBT community and also undocumented, I wish I could say that we don't have that issue anymore, but it's been shown that um, oftentimes when we sort of bring up this conversation, people are not ready to hear or make the connections. I've been speaking throughout the country and I have been approached by people who are, you know, both undocumented and LGBT. So they tell me that, you know, um, my parents, this is just one example. They're like, my parents tell me that why is the LGBT community fighting for like documented, right? Like they don't see the connection. And I think part of that has to do because of the, the fear of any chances of having any sort of protection goes goes out the door or something. And, and, you know, it's unfortunate that people think that way. I know sometimes um, uh, mainstream immigrants' rights groups now finally are starting to make efforts to include and be more intersectional, to bring other voices that are also impacted by immigration, but oftentimes were not part of the conversations to begin with. And but it's, it's a slow process. I wish we were in a place where people were more accepting, more welcoming, and and to see that when we, as members of the community, are fighting for a better world, it will also mean a better world for them, right? And for all of us in general. So there are still efforts to be made. I know I have spoken at conferences that are outside the community, and, and sometimes people want ask, like, why do we have a trans woman speaking to us? You know what I mean? And and part of that is because there hasn't really been um, a lot of efforts to really inform people outside our own groups that there are connections, that people are being targeted, especially in these times. And if they get behind us and support us, then we can all benefit in the end. So, you know, it's still true, but I... I'm hoping and, and I'm hopeful that we will move beyond that sometime in the future and then people can start making those connections. Another divide that we've seen during the course of these shows that we've done is the division between the Latino LGBTQ community and the rest of the mainstream 
dare I say, white LGBT community. I think one example was this is um, the uh, the Pulse nightclub shooting about three years ago. And it was mostly from a white LGBTQ point of view what what took place there. And the person that we spoke to at the time said it was like an, almost an erasure of LGBTQ Latino culture. So I want to know if, if you see such a similar division as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. Again, another sad statement to agree with because – you know, people of color in general, especially LGBT folks, have been at the forefront of the movement. Um, this year alone, you know, we are about to celebrate 50, 50, 50, okay? We're about to celebrate 50 years of the Stonewall Rebellion that happened in New York City. And the people that led that were trans woman of color, it was a black trans woman, a Latina trans woman, among other marginalized folks, right? And oftentimes they have been forgotten, they have been erased of the contributions that they contributed in the fight for, um, you know, for the gay rights movement in this country and around the world. So when that pulse happened, you know, that we started to see the narrative being centered around whiteness and not really reflecting the people that were the victims, right? There were, I believe, 49 victims that were murdered that night at Pulse and their narratives weren't being uplifted. So once we saw that that was happening and for some reason they want to appeal to the mainstream media and things like that, um, you know, Familia, we were like, we need to do something about it. So Familia, we came together, we brought like four people, we did a, sh- a short video that went viral, right? And our response to Paul's and how that we cannot allow for this erasure to happen and that we have to send to the people that were targeted that night in Paul's. So this is something that has existed for, you know, years. So it's nothing new. So this, this division, this, um, you know, rift in, in community is still pretty much exists, you know, in the fight for, for liberation and rights in this country, how there is a disconnect and how we have to continue to do the work and remind people. Another example that I can think of when the whole marriage equality battle, if you look at that campaign, most of the people that were being centered were like white gay men or white gay, you know, lesbian women. And there was a demonstration at the White House in 2014 where one of the mainstream LGBT organizations told members of, you know, of the LGBTQ people who were people of color and undocumented, like, this is not the time for you to bring up or make any connections with immigration, like basically, you know, silencing their voices and saying, do not say that you're undocumented pretty much because, again, the priority for them is to, 
you know, make sure this legislation was passed with the marriage equality battle. So it's something that we have to constantly remind. And it's, it's honestly very exhausting that we as people of color have to navigate and, and really fight so many, so many people and so many groups, right? But nevertheless, we are consistent. We believe in a better world and we will continue to do what we can to get to that point. This is precisely why we want to have you on the show, because we don't want any part of whitewashing Latino LGBTQ culture. And as an example, since you mentioned Stonewall, there are some forgotten LGBTQ heroes during this period in time. One of them is Silvia Rivera. So for those who may not know, can you tell us who is Silvia Rivera? Yeah, Silvia Rivera was a young trans uh, gender nonconforming person. At the time, the language wasn't really there for the community, but she was a young trans-Latina that became very good friends with Marsha P. Johnson and both, you know, were organizing around people who were homeless, people who were sex workers, people who, who were being incarcerated at the time, but the New York Police Department, obviously in New York City, because if you were assigned, you know, male at birth and then you wanted to wear two pieces of clothing that were based on the standards, right, um, for women, like you could be arrested. So people were finding places so they can express themselves and their gender identity. So Sylvia used to go to the Stonewall frequently. That sort of became a place for people who were not really um, supported by, you know, the, the mainstream groups. And that's when um, they will, the police in New York will do raids in these places and will arrest people. But not only will they arrest people, but also they will beat up people, right? It was really, it was getting really horrible, really bad. And, and one night in June 1969, they just said enough and they started to revolt against law enforcement. And it's been, um, you know, recorded that it was Sylvia and Marsha who started that and started to throw the first uh, rocks out of way or whatever they had in their hands against the police. And it just created like a three day sort of mini riot against the police brutal against the police department in, in New York City, and that's been sort of forgotten, and it has been people of color that want to remind the rest of the community that their contributions are essential, and we should not forget about what they did. So many of us can have opportunities, can have protections that we see now. Has woman male soul? Does dead live in her? Is Professor Eugene DeForest, woman who masqueraded as a man for 25 years, the reincarnation of her dead brother? Or is her queer condition of male mentality in a female body due to parental influence? 
These are the questions which scientists are to solve, and on which lawyers may base their defense of the woman's masquerade. Unless she is permitted to wear men's clothes as she desires, and continues her life as she will. The law may not prevent her from so doing, but it will prevent her marrying again, either as a man or a woman. Oakland Tribune, September 3rd, 1915. Peter, I confess, much of my knowledge about the West comes from movies and old television shows, but certainly the image of the West is one that, well, I, I've never heard uh, a discussion of transgender. I've never seen it. It doesn't appear in any of the John Wayne movies that I've watched. Yeah, well, I began to wonder, why is it that these people that I found to be so numerous and so many historical records about them, why they have been largely forgotten from our Western past. It's a little bit easier to try to figure out why things are remembered, but how do you ever forget why someone or a culture works to forget something? So what's the answer, Peter? At the end of the 19th century is a very important transitional moment in American history, and it's at this time that crystallizes the romantic story about America's frontier past and the belief that the frontier past bequeathed to America all sorts of positive characteristics and attributes that make it into the best democracy in the world. You know, at the very time that this frontier romantic idea of America's frontier past was crystallized, and this is also when American sexologists start to study what they think is a new phenomenon, the appearance of sexual inversion. And they identify the appearance of sexual inversion with eastern urban areas in particular. They made the argument that frontier living conditions prevented sexual perversion from appearing. And it could only appear in a modern context, people living too close together, overstimulation of nightlife, bad hygiene. So how do these fascinating stories shed light on our contemporary conversation about gender identity? When we look at our myths about the frontier foundations of the United States and what this country has been and what this country is as far as a democracy, the myths that we have about this country were created purposely in juxtaposition of transgender people. So I think that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind today about transgender people specifically, there's this ongoing attempt to sideline them in our history and in our society, when in fact our history and society is really constructed in opposition to them. Why are transgender people suddenly everywhere? (laughs) As a trans activist, I get this question a lot. 
keep in mind, less than 1% of American adults openly identify as trans. According to a recent GLAD survey, about 16% of non-trans Americans claim to know a trans person in real life. So for the other 84%, this may seem like a new topic, but trans people are not new. Gender variance is older than you think, and trans people are part of that legacy. From Central Africa to South America to the Pacific Islands and beyond, there have been populations who recognize multiple genders, and they go way back. The Hijra of India and Pakistan, for example, have been cited as far back as 2,000 years ago in the Kama Sutra. Indigenous American nations each have their own terms, but most share the umbrella term two-spirit. They saw gender-variant people as shamans and healers in their communities. And it wasn't until the spread of colonialism that they were taught to think otherwise. Now, in researching trans history, we look for both trans people and trans practices. Take, for example, the women who presented as men so they could fight in the U.S. Civil War. After the war, most resumed their lives as women, but some, like Albert Cashier, continued to live as men. Albert was eventually confined to an asylum and forced to wear a dress for the rest of his life. Around 1895, a group of self-described androgynes formed the Circle Hermaphroditus. Their mission was to unite for defense against the world's bitter persecution. And in doing that, they became one of the earliest trans support groups. By the 40s and 50s, medical researchers were starting to study trans medicine, but they were aided by their trans patients like Louise Lawrence, a trans woman who had corresponded extensively with people who'd been arrested for public cross-dressing. She introduced sexual researchers like Alfred Kinsey to a massive trans network. Other early figures would follow, like Virginia Prince, Reed Erickson, and the famous Christine Jorgensen, who made headlines with her very public transition in 1952. But while white trans suburbanites were forming their own support networks, many trans people of color had to carve their own path. Some, like Miss Major Griffin Gracie, walked in drag balls. Others were the so-called street queens who were often targeted by police for their gender expression and found themselves on the forefront of seminal events in the LGBT rights movement. This brings us to the riots at Cooper's Donuts in 1959, Compton's Cafeteria in 1966, and the famous Stonewall Inn in 1969. In 1970, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, two veterans of Stonewall, established STAR, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. Trans people continued to fight for equal treatment under the law, even as they faced higher rates of discrimination, unemployment, arrests, and the looming AIDS epidemic. For as long as we've been around, those in power have sought to disenfranchise trans people for daring to live lives that are ours. This motion picture still, taken in Berlin in 1933, is sometimes used in history textbooks to illustrate how the Nazis burned works they considered un-German. But what's rarely mentioned is that included in this massive pile are works from the Institute for Sexual Research. See, I just recapped the trans movement in America, but Magnus Hirschfeld and his peers in Germany had us beat by a few decades. Magnus Hirschfeld was an early advocate for LGBT people. He wrote the first book-length account of trans individuals. He helped them obtain medical services and IDs. He worked with the Berlin Police Department to end discrimination of LGBT people, and he hired them at the Institute. So when the Nazi party burned his library, it had devastating implications for trans research around the world. This was a deliberate attempt to erase trans people, and it was neither the first nor the last. 
So whenever people ask me why trans people are suddenly everywhere, I just want to tell them that we've been here. These stories have to be told, along with the countless others that have been buried by time. Not only were our lives not celebrated, but our struggles have been forgotten. And yeah, to some people, that makes trans issues seem new. Today, I meet a lot of people who think that our movement is just a phase that will pass. But I also hear well-intentioned allies telling us all to be patient because our movement is still new. Imagine how the conversation would shift if we acknowledge just how long trans people have been demanding equality. Are we still overreacting? Should we continue to wait? Or should we, for example, do something about the trans women of color who are murdered and whose killers never see justice? Do our circumstances seem dire to you yet? Finally, I want other trans people to realize they're not alone. I grew up thinking my identity was an anomaly that would die with me. People drilled this idea of otherness into my mind, and I bought it because I didn't know anyone else like me. Maybe if I had known my ancestors sooner, it wouldn't have taken me so long to find a source of pride in my identity and in my community. Because I belong to an amazing, vibrant community of people that uplift each other even when others won't, that take care of each other even when we're struggling. That somehow, despite it all, still find cause to celebrate each other, to love each other, to look one another in the eyes and say, "You are not alone. You have us, and we're not going anywhere." We've just heard clips today, starting with Mother Jones telling the story of the Stonewall riots. Sean King on The Breakdown explained the dangers the trans community faces and the responsibility we all have for the impacts of what we say, not just our intentions. The Laura Flanders Show explained the necessity of embracing trans rights as an element of breaking down the patriarchy. Democracy Now! discussed the deaths of trans asylum seekers. Latino Rebels Radio explained the intersection of the LGBTQ and undocumented communities. Backstory showed how gender nonconforming people existed in the U.S. more than 100 years ago, and how the story of the growth of the country was intentionally framed in exact opposition to trans people. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk from Sammy Newer Eunice giving a brief history of the past, present, and future of the trans community. Members this week will hear further discussion about the recent deaths of black trans women in Texas and beyond, plus we are continuing our uh, very uncomfortable but uh, thoughtful and nuanced discussion about uh, none other than violent pornography and its impacts on society. It's a discussion that began as a response to voicemails from a listener who brought up the topic, and now we've received interesting responses regarding uh, the sort of broader concepts of uh, the debate between prohibition and harm reduction, as well as broader thinking about how fiction can influence society, like how the fictional novel The Turner Diaries has influenced generations of white supremacists to believe that they can overthrow the government. Pretty interesting stuff. So to hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft, and now we'll hear from you. Yeah, Dario Nadi from Anchorage, Alaska. 
been listening to some back shows at work. I can't hear everything. I was listening to a guest who um, was talking about reparations and how they need to be addressed individually. And I tend to agree, but at the same time disagree. And maybe disagree isn't the proper term, but as a Native American, the U.S. government and and basically all colonial powers or European colonial powers, white, however you want to group them, we're abusing everyone of color, whether it's Native Americans, Alaska Natives, Latinos, Asians, Africans. Yes, there was slavery. Yes, there definitely needs to be reparations for that. Yes, Native Americans need more reparation than what we've received. But also the immigrants and people who have stayed in their countries who have been abused by the United States is one of the worst, but all European powers. And, um, you know, I'm particularly familiar with the Philippines and the Philippine War after the Spanish-American War. And we were allies, supposedly, but then we went in and claimed it as a trust territory or colony. And we started killing those Filipinos that didn't agree. And it was the same officers and soldiers who had just committed the Sand Creek Massacre and wounded wounded knee and other atrocities against Native Americans. They got on a ship and went overseas. And through the whole United States history, they've been doing the same thing, whether it was Nicaragua, Ecuador, Panama, Colombia, from the Mediterranean, Pacific, Atlantic, Indian Ocean, all around the world, the same thing as they've done to blacks with slavery, Native Americans killing us and running us off our land, and just whether it's mining or banana plantation, sugar, tobacco, whatever, coffee, rubber, all around the world, the same thing. Thank you. I hope I didn't ramble too long. Hi again, Dario from Alaska. I just had to continue on with my comments. My last call, I talked more about the world and the slavery and the land theft all around the world by Caucasians, uh, European and American, with America being one of the worst. But the more modern my own experience living in Anchorage, I'm 64, so I'm about five years too young to have seen the signs in the stores that said, no natives and dogs. But even though the signs had to be pulled down when I was young, the feeling was still there. You would go in a store and they would follow you around. You'd be the last one to get service at the counter. 
we had subdivisions that were red red line and besides not even being able to buy a house there walking from my grandma's house to the swimming lake we would walk through one of those subdivisions and there would be times people would be out there hollering get the hell out of the neighborhood we're not welcome in school the same thing so anyway reparations for former slaves and all blacks reparation for latinos asians pacific islanders and native americans they need to be addressed individually yes but they also we need to team up group as reparations on a grander scale thank you for your time have a great day enjoy the show Hi, Jay. This is Brandon calling again from Chicago. Sorry, I don't know what happened to last voicemail. But what I was saying is, as I think to think about this impeachment, I think think about the theory of change that, that you talked about during the 2016 election. And with impeaching Trump, I am not interested in reform. I'm interested in more revolutionary sort of change. And, and all the calls for impeachment, I, I haven't heard uh, the administration be called out on what Betsy DeVos is doing in the educational system, what Ben Carson is doing in HUD, different things like that. And that's why I fear if he's impeached, it's going to be under the guise of civility. And then as we put put, put in a new president, we will be back to business as usual. We'll still be sending people away that that are immigrants and seeking refugees status and different things like that. So I, I, I think the same thing is that the Democrats need to just come out and be like, this is a corrupt system and simply changing ahead in a corrupt system will make no no change. And that, that's what we're, we're, we're going to focus on reform or not, not reforming. We're, we're going to change the system entirely. I think that's the best way to go about this. Because um, once again, I don't think reform is going to save us. I think we need to make revolutionary change. And I believe that impeachment would just be part of a reform process and not be the revolutionary change that we all are looking for. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, thanks to Dario for calling in. Uh, We absolutely appreciate your perspective and telling uh, your stories. And then secondly, to Brandon, thank you for calling back in. Uh, if, if you missed the last episode, Brandon called, got through about half of his message, and then was mysteriously cut off. And so he was able to wrap up his thoughts today, which is good because now I, I understand more of where he's coming from. So let's talk about theory of change and break down how this might actually go, not just with impeachment, but in in the broader perspective. So um, we're in agreement, you know, if we're talking about uh, radical change, not reform, uh, that means that the Democratic Party needs 
uh, some pretty dramatic change rather than the slow incremental reform that they are, you know, accustomed to. The argument goes, you could either uh, try to unseat the Democratic Party with a third party, or you could take over the Democratic Party with more radically progressive people who then make the Democratic Party is an almost fundamentally different party than it is. That's sort of what happened with the Republicans when the Tea Party took over. They became more radically to the right uh, in 2010 and beyond when the Tea Party uh, really uh, began to influence the the uh, the operations and the structures of the GOP. I am on the take over the Democratic Party side of that argument. So my theory of change is uh, the the structures of our politics are set. Uh, so much against third parties that that is such a structural barrier that it's not worth fighting that fight right now. I would be happy for radical progressives to take over the Democratic Party and then help change the rules so that third parties would have more of a chance. But really, it's more just the way our system is set up our, you know, the, the American political system, not not just that the Democrats and Republicans have rigged it in favor of themselves staying in power, but the, the structures of how we vote lend itself to a, a stable two-party system rather than a multi-party system. So I'm getting a little off track. That That's our thoughts on uh, the Democrats in general. But because the Democrats have not been fundamentally reformed, now we're getting back to Brandon's point about what they should do in terms of impeachment. And, and you know, the, the Democrats should come forward and say the whole system you know, is, is invalid. That's not going to happen. It's just not because the people in charge of the Democratic Party right now don't think the whole system is invalid. So in terms of theory of change, that's hoping for something or wishing for something that is an actual impossibility right now. We're working to reform the party so that that way of thinking could be possible in the future. We're just not there yet. And then uh, when it comes to structural changes, uh, you know, the, the sort of radical change that we need in our politics— I put campaign finance reform very near, if not at the top of that list. Uh, campaign finance reform helps all of the rest of the reforms, radical or otherwise, that we need to be able to come into place. So uh, campaign finance reform is needed, and that's on the congressional level. It would affect presidential politics as well. But it, it's Congress that really needs to make that happen, and it would have, I think, a much larger impact on Congress than it would have on the presidency. So now we get to the presidency. Where, like, where does the presidency fit in our status quo system of various forms of corruption? I think that the presidency is really negatively affected. Not the presidents themselves, they probably love it. The institution of the presidency is really negatively affected by the lack of restraint that Congress puts on it. We have not declared an actual war since, uh, I, I think, since World War II. I think, I think uh, the Korean War was the first sort of police action and, and you know, military approved something, something, but not really a war. So Congress has not really been in the position to, uh, you know, help declare war 
as is their constitutional duty. That's just one example of the presidency not being restrained as it should. But as I mentioned in the previous episode, ever since Nixon was pardoned, there's been this sort of undercurrent, this idea that presidents can kind of do whatever they want and probably get away with it because Congress isn't going to do anything because our institutional belief is that it would be catastrophic to the country to hold anyone to account. So then you get things uh, not just like Watergate, but then you get Iran-Contra under Reagan. And now, as I think most of, of us listening are going to agree, one of the most corrupt presidencies in our history. And we're having a debate about whether we should do anything about it. Like the fact that we're having a debate over whether we should do anything about the most corrupt presidency in our history is evidence of the profoundly terrible status quo we're in. So as much as I'm in agreement with Brandon about how we need radical reforms in a variety of ways, I actually see this as a radical reform. Because to go from a status quo where we pussyfoot around and and just ask ourselves the question, I don't know, should we hold a president to account for being horribly, horribly corrupt? Um, I don't know. Let's think about it. To go from that status quo to a new status quo where we say, no, it is okay to hold the presidency to account and the country will not fall apart. Some people are going to be mad, but they're going to get over it because when the evidence comes out, eventually people come around to the idea that, okay, yeah, I guess that wasn't so good. I was supporting a guy that you know I probably shouldn't have been. And then we can move on. And future presidents won't have the same sort of feeling of freedom to do whatever they want, no matter how illegal or corrupt, because they will they will think to themselves, oh, I don't know, like we we may be in a new day it may be that congress is actually going to act from now on because they will have seen that they could act and the country was better off for it so just to to brandon's point of course the democratic party isn't going to impeach trump in a radical way they're not going to impeach him because of his policies because of terrible things Betsy DeVos has done. That's not in the realm of impeachment. That's not not like that's a different discussion. We need radical reform in HUD and the education department and all of that. The question of impeachment and the presidency is separate, and we can have a separate conversation about the need for radical reform. And I think that changing the way we think about holding the presidency to account is the kind of radical reform that we so often advocate on this show. So again, thanks to Brandon for calling back in and and clarifying or or expanding your thoughts. It certainly gave me an opportunity to better understand where you're coming from. And as as long as we're talking about theories of change, I got plenty of opinions about theories of change. So uh, it's good to be able to understand that different changes need different theories. So if we need you know, radical reform in one way, that may take campaign finance reform. But if we need radical reform in another way, that may take impeachment. And those two things don't actually have to be related. They can just come from the same like general philosophy of we need to manage the politics of our country very, very differently than we have been for the last several decades. 
If you have thoughts on this, I would love to hear them. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.